research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where I'm joined today uh, by my partner and co-host, Eric Eggers. Eric, great to have you here. It's always so fun to be here at The Drill Down on the facts and the things that are wrong with American society. That's exactly right. And we're going to talk today about a bomb that went off a massive bomb that we all experienced and that was the covid bomb uh like anytime you look at a bomb site uh, there are buildings that are left standing there are buildings that fell apart what we're going to talk today about is who are the winners and losers and why were certain decisions made and the way we were going to handle covid uh we're going to talk about the public health industrial complex we're going to talk about the revolving door between big pharma and the people that were actually making the decisions on how to handle the virus. Uh, and we're going to talk about what I see as a big problem, which is this sort of logical fallacy. I love using that term. I learned this in college. I took a class in logic in college. Um, and there's this fallacy that has embraced the country, which is what they call appeal to authority. And that's insisting that a claim is simply true because a valid authority or expert said that it's true without supporting evidence. And, and a classic example of that would be Dr. Fauci, who has said that he represents science. Uh, in other words, he doesn't really need to explain things. He simply needs to say them. And therefore, they are scientifically valid. I'd just like to point out that you like to assert your intelligence both by using big words like fallacy <laughs> and then by low-key mention that you went to college. So well done. <laughs> you know, that, that's a word you learned in college in case there was any doubt that Schweitzer's erudite. Uh, no, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned bomb and we will be approaching, I think, the, the closest thing to the global pandemic and the fact that we went dark as a society for the first time in my lifetime. And it's really the, the most impactful thing to happen to us, quite honestly, since 9-11. And we're now approaching the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And if you talk to like a high school kid who was actually born after that happened, you try to explain kind of what happened. You're like, well, no, some people were on a plane. It's actually 19 people from Saudi Arabia flew planes into several different buildings. And then our response after that was to then invade Afghanistan and then Iraq. And they're like, well, well, why was that? And they're like, yeah, it, it all kind of made sense at the time. And so I think it just speaks to the idea that we can kind of get caught up in this fog of war, right? Yeah. It, it, things get confusing and there's this group think that sort of takes yes. over. Yep. And so I think it's fair to ask, and I think what we'll explore today is to what extent did we make decisions that, yes, hey, we're all glad we survived the right. bomb, right? right? I mean, of course, every, we're all glad we're here, but do they sort of make sense in hindsight and or who won and who made money as a result. Yeah, and, and the uh, Iraq War uh, example that you gave is a classic one because the consensus, I think it was nine intelligence agencies around the world, including all of those in the United States, were saying that Iraq was developing weapons of mass destruction, may even have weapons of mass destruction, and it turned out that wasn't quite true. The intelligence experts are very smart, but they succumb to groupthink. 
Uh, They operated in this bubble. And we're going to argue today that there is a public health industrial complex uh, that has a similar problem um, because they all talk to each other. They are immune to outside input. They are motivated by money just like everybody else is. Um, One of my heroes, uh, Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, once said, you don't become an angel just when you walk into a government building. And his point was that, you know, we all recognize that in the private sector, in the business world, people make decisions because they want to make money. They want, uh, you know, more money in the future. They want a better position. But he said the same thing applies to government employees. And so we're going to talk today about what perhaps are some of the motives of the decisions uh, that they make. And the first thing that, that we all have to acknowledge, Eric, is that when it came to the response to COVID, this bomb goes off. We're going to try to deal with it. There was a lot of money at stake. We spent a lot of money uh, when it came to dealing with COVID and trying to combat COVID. Yeah, and I think the point of talking about just how much money is changing hands and how much money is going into these industries that are developing the vaccines is not to say, hey, this money is being wasted. Right. Because obviously the vaccines have become this central element to what's allowed us to reemerge as a society, right? So, but at the same time, then it's like, well, if you can't question it, did every decision that got made, was it the most correct? Was it the most efficient, right? And did it go where it should have gone? So just to sort of briefly discuss the amount of billions of dollars that we've spent on treatments. So the U.S. just signed a $1.2 billion deal deal for uh, 1.7 million courses of the Merck experimental drug, which would be coming online. Of course, the Trump administration spent a casual $12.4 billion on vaccines and Operation Warp Speed. And then the American Rescue Plan, which then was sort of the next phase of that under the Biden administration, appropriated more than $16 billion for vaccine research and development. And if you go look at the congressional research study and tracking the amount of money, and we've got $50 billion allocated over the next several years, sort of in an open-ended thing for the continued development research of vaccines for the various, you know, the new strains that can be coming out, the variants. So yeah, I mean, Close to $100 billion will be spent on this thing, if not more, by the time it's all said and done. Yeah, and somebody has to decide who gets what money, right? And these are oftentimes not elected officials. They're government bureaucrats. And as we're going to see, a lot of those government bureaucrats end up doing consulting work for the same big companies that they're sharing it with. But at the same time, they're passing out all of this money. They were taking some really, I think, weird uh, positions during the midst of COVID to sort of prevent low-cost existing treatments that didn't fix COVID, but certainly helped with COVID. And the the example here, of course, is hydroxychloroquine, uh, which has been used for decades to fight malaria. But they not only came out and issued a caution, which I understand, to say, hey, look, don't just start downing this stuff in your kitchen. Um, You know, do it. You should do it, you know, with a medical um, professional. But some states, actually, you had government healthcare bureaucrats telling doctors you are not allowed to prescribe this for your own patients. I mean, in other words, you have these government officials telling doctors, we're going to take this off the table that has this history of working, and we're going to say, you're not allowed to use it to treat your own patients. Yeah, we don't care what you do, just don't do that. Right, exactly. And and this is a classic example to me of, of what they call groupthink. Uh, you know, uh, you had all these government officials, they didn't want uh, to uh, uh, have hydroxy used, I think, for a variety of motivations. So they all decided together, we're just going to sort of shut this down. The classic example of groupthink would be if we're all together in a group 
and we've all got a bunch of hammers laying around, uh, we're going to assume that the solution to the problem is the hammer that we have at hand. You just described my Friday night so perfectly. I don't know. Just me and a bunch of other dudes with hammers, you know. But I think those two motivations, I think one would be political because if Trump's touting it, then obviously, and that's the other crazy thing to think about. Like we had a global pandemic in an election year under maybe the most polarizing and hated president by almost any aspect of like mainstream society. So I think it's fair to ask. Mainstream media, certainly. Yeah, sure. And I think it's fair to ask, did we get the best take on everything? And so if he's out there touting this hydrochloroquine, then some people are going to be against it for that reason. But there's also a financial piece to it, right? Right, right, exactly. And the financial piece is... There's no money in hydroxychloroquine. There's no patent that anybody has. Uh, it's inexpensive. Um, instead of costing thousands of dollars for a treatment, it's tens of dollars for a treatment. Uh, and, you know, of course, what happened is it was great fanfare. Trump said hey, hydroxychloroquine has shown some good results. Uh, several states came out and banned it. They, of course, quietly later on reversed themselves because they realized that there actually was some scientific support to this. But the point is, and I think you're right, they weren't following the science. They were following the money because the money is in the treatments that big pharma could generate. Uh, And that's not to suggest that we don't want big pharma doing this kind of research. But the point is, why are you taking a low cost um, uh, uh, you know, medical treatment that's helping people who have COVID overcome it. Why are you taking it off the table? And certainly part of that motivation has to be money. And, and so the question is how much are big companies, big pharma going to make off of the vaccines? Yeah, and the tur- numbers are eye pop. Yeah. It turns out it's not an insignificant amount of money, right? <laughs> like if you were in uh, pharmaceutical stocks last year, you're probably doing okay right now. I mean, Pfizer, has announced that they expect between 15 to $30 billion off their vaccine. And they've only seen a 1.8% jump in their share. But their partner vaccine developer, BioNTech, has gained 156% gain in their share price. Moderna expects to make between 18 to $20 billion, And they've seen a 372% jump in their share price, rivaling only Peter Schweitzer's personal portfolio. <laughs> uh, I wish, I jo- wish. Johnson & Johnson up to $10 billion in sales. Uh, stock up seven seven percent, and then AstraZeneca expects to make between two and three billion dollars through twenty twenty two. So uh, a, a significant amount of money, and I think that's where you know your sort of default frame, our sort of default frame at GAI is follow the money. And so if we say, okay, there was this treatment that maybe could have been pursued, it would have been low cost, it would have been maybe beneficial politically to Trump because he was sort of touting it initially, right? And now that's not not something we pursued. Instead, we went to these pharmaceutical companies who, oh by the way massively powerful politically, and they're going to make tens of billions of dollars as a result. I think it's fair to just point that out. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, Novavax, which is a lesser known uh, vaccine maker, um, is going to get several billion dollars in revenue next year. Their share price jumped 1,128%. We should have the Novavax stock. But the point is, again, there's a lot of money to be made, not just in the distribution uh, or the production uh, of the pharmaceuticals, but you create this 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 um, new brand for yourself, as it were. I mean, in other words, what the vaccine makers are going to do, and it makes sense medically, obviously, they're going to continue to create variants down the road. When a new variant of COVID-19 exists, suddenly they've got a new booster shot, and it's a, it's, it's a new revenue stream. And 
we're all capitalists. We believe in capitalism. We believe in the free market. But let's keep in mind that that at least three of these vaccine makers received taxpayer dollars. AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson and Moderna all received federal dollars to make this happen. And somebody had to make the decision on who is going to get what amount of money of our money. Also think about the fact that now that we've established the precedent that when we're faced with this threat of a pandemic, that the options are go dark or get a vaccine and we'll fund the vaccine. And so this is now baked into the business model, right, for these right. pharmaceutical companies. And so the, the new variants, while posing a public health risk, also pose a potential profit boon for these companies. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the executives are now motivated to go in this direction uh, because the government approval and the government results make all the difference. Uh, in fact, the day that Pfizer announced that their vaccine was 90% effective based on government tests, what do you think the company's chief executive officer did with his stock portfolio? He actually sold 5.6 million shares the exact same day that the federal government announced uh, that the drug was 90 percent effective. But but here's the interesting thing that a lot of people uh, are missing out on, and that's it. It's not just big pharma. In fact, NIH, where Anthony Fauci works, they actually probably have a ownership in the intellectual property of the Moderna vaccine. So that suggests what? That one of the public entities who's offering guidance and helping steer and shape public policy and how we respond to this new global health threat is invested in one of the solutions. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and again, it's a classic example of follow the money. And we understand and believe and know that free markets are good. Uh, uh, we know that that's the way that you create the greater efficiencies. But here, it's it's not quite a free market because you've got big pharmaceutical companies colluding with big government. And big government is picking winners and losers. And then big government is getting their cut which is going to further incentivize them to go down this route exactly the same way in the future. I and mean, they don't just get their cut from a financial investment in these pharmaceutical companies. We also see the pharmaceutical lobby be enormously influential in terms of just their presence as a lobbying force, right? In terms of campaign donations, they gave 60% to Democrats, the Pfizer company yep. in 2020 election cycles, 40% to Republicans. Of course, the top recipient of Pfizer cash was Joe Biden. Joe Biden. That's right. Um, 70 senators got a donation, 300 House reps. And so they've been writing uh, big checks to more than two thirds of Congress. And it remains, you know, an, an overwhelmingly influential entity. And Pfizer's not the only one. Right. Uh, Pfizer's not the only one. And this is, uh, I think, critical to understand that at every single level of decision making, whether it's Congress that's deciding on the allocation of money or deciding whether you're going to uh, limit liability on certain pharmaceutical drugs so on the legislative slot side, we've got it covered because we're giving money uh, to all these elected officials. But then when it comes to the bureaucrats in the public health system itself, we also have these financial relationships as well because of something called the revolving door. Um, what, what does that mean, Peter Schweitzer? <laughs> well, the revolving door, we've all heard it as it relates to the Pentagon, as it relates to the Department of Justice. That's where government officials, uh, when they leave government service, end up going to work for companies that they were interacting with when they were still in government. So a lot of people that work at the Pentagon, they maybe they work for the uh, for the uh, the army uh, uh you know, in the military, they end up working for contractors that are selling uh, equipment and goods and vehicles to the U.S. Army. The same thing happens when it comes to uh, our public health officials and um, 
where they go after they leave. They go working for these big pharmaceutical companies. And, well, and, and to the point, right? I mean, we talked about the Iraq war metaphor. I mean, how many times did we hear because Dick Cheney had gone to work for Halliburton, right? Which is a massive right. defense contractor. Right. And then we start, we embark on any number of military initiatives. We heard that as a something that was constantly referenced in the context of any decision that were made. I don't know that we've heard a ton about the public health industrial complex revolving door in this context. Well, that's right. And I mean, you look at recent moves, uh, and this is not unusual. It happens all the time. The former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, took a job offer at Pfizer and received a large bonus when he went there. The uh, HHS secretary, Alex Azar, um, uh, you know, left and worked for Lilly, which is, again, a big pharmaceutical company. But even at the at the lower level, the people, the the medical experts that are supposed to look at the decisions that are being made about what drugs to approve or not approve. Uh, there was a study done um, about a decade ago that found 64 percent of the medical experts on these advisory panels for the CDC have potential conflicts of interests that had not been identified or resolved. Imagine that. <laughs> I mean, part of the reason why this matters, right, is we're, we're, the whole fog of war context. What are we making decisions based on? And are right. we making decisions based on the best possible outcome? Or are we making decisions based on the things and companies and entities that are influencing us, that we're talking to on a regular basis, that we have relationships with, whether political, financial, or otherwise? I mean, you mentioned the Milton Friedman Nobody becomes an angel just because you walk into a government building. You don't stop having relationships with right. people. You don't stop having friends. You don't stop taking text messages from companies as it was like, hey, it would be really great if we could make this happen. There are forces actively trying to shape policy all the time. Government bureaucrats have kids that want to go to college, kids that need braces. Maybe they want to put the kid in a private school. Uh, so they're looking for their financial future is the same way everybody is. So the bottom line is, you know, are they following the science all the time or are they also following the money? Well, and one of the points uh, that you'd make out is or that you'd point out is not just follow the money, but think about the news that came out about the CDC director, uh, Rochelle Walensky. <laughs> yeah. And both in terms of the politics where she warned of the impending doom when governors of Texas and Mississippi said to lift the mask mandates and you know Joe Biden would call him Neanderthal. What, what 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 happened? Did the the sky turn dark and a bunch of people die? Well, I don't live in Texas or Mississippi, but the people I do know are still alive over there. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. As far as I know. Yeah. It also came out that the CDC was working with the teachers union right. in incorporating different guidance and taking some of the union talking points for official CDC guidance. So we have plenty of examples of things that aren't just science influencing public policy. And so your suggestion here is that the head of the NEA did not have a lot in terms of science to contribute to the conversation with the CDC, but the CDC took the call because in that particular case, they were following the politics. So, you know, that's what you have with with uh, these government officials um, like Walensky. They want to stand up as an authority figure and say, we are simply here to reflect the science, but they're not. They're, they're reflecting uh, their financial interests, the financial interests of the entity. They're reflecting the political interests. That's why you take the call from the head of the NEA and you actually sit there and listen to them when they opine on, on the opening of schools. These are not science decisions. This is, this is a political decision and a financial decision uh, that, that they're making. Yeah, I don't think we're breaking any news to suggest that the policy regarding public schools was not entirely based on science. I mean, that's one of the reasons yeah. why Governor DeSantis has emerged so well because he's actually said no here's what the science says the rest of you guys are just adhering to the political forces of the teachers unions which i think we'll definitely do a podcast on that in the future but yeah 
it's important to point out what decisions are we making? We hear follow the science all the time. And all we're saying is here's lots of other things that aren't science that appear to be being followed or at least appear to represent positions and forces that benefited, right? If the bomb went off to go back to the beginning of this podcast and we reemerged and we're looking to say, all right, which buildings are still standing? Right. There seems to be a common theme. Yeah, there does seem to be a common theme. And to the point of the politics uh, of all of this, probably the most disturbing thing that we found in our research as it related to the CDC and decisions about the distribution of vaccines. Now, the science on on what happened with COVID, who suffered the most, is overwhelming. People that are older, people that have existing health conditions are the most vulnerable to dying from getting COVID. And yet there was this shocking uh, memo, this presentation that CDC health officials, I'm going to put that in quotation marks, gave where they wanted to talk about the feasibility, the science and the ethics of distributing the vaccine, not based on giving it to people who were older. Why did they not want to give it to people that are older? Because there are too many white people that were older. They were actually applying critical race theory to the distribution of vaccines. As a white person, I'm on, it's unclear how I'm allowed to respond to that. <laughs> well, I will respond to it. It's outrageous. And it shows the extent to which the CDC and these government entities have become politicized. And when they stand up in front of you on the television screen or you read about them in the newspaper, or you hear them on the radio uh, and they say, we simply need to follow the science um, that should not be good enough. Don't let them appeal to that authority. Call them out. And if what they're saying is not logical, it's not consistent with what we know, we need to call them out and not be intimidated uh, because this is a subject that we don't know as much about as they do. And we're having you know fun with it. But the reality is this. You know, I know the people that are listening to this know we all know people we haven't seen in over a year. Right. Because yeah. people were scared. They yeah. went into their home. They didn't come outside. Relationships were severed, right? Families were separated yeah. because people, by and large, were trying to do the right thing. They were trusting the science. They were trusting the experts. I know lots of people that said, I will do whatever Dr. Fauci tells me to do. Yeah. Because what do they know, right? right. I mean, some, some people want to trust the government officials. They want to trust the people that we hold up as public health experts and say, all right, if these guys say this is what's best for everybody, then this is what I will do. I have very good friends who are very smart people that did that. And the tragedy is that I think what we're seeing is that while they were trying to be obedient and trusting what they were told was the science, what we're seeing is evidence that maybe the science was shaped by lots of things that weren't exactly scientific. Right. And and people like Dr. Fauci uh, are not human beings that are solely motivated by the science and by the national interest. It's human nature. They're motivated by a multitude of things. And I have a lot of friends who just do whatever it is that Dr. Fauci said and Unfortunately, what they don't realize is he's been wrong about a decent amount of stuff. But we're not going to have a vaccine that's deployable for at least a year to a year and a half. What can you tell the American people uh, about what's going on? Should they be scared? Uh, I don't think so. The American people should not be worried or frightened by this. It's a very, very low risk to the United States. It isn't something that the American public needs to worry about or be frightened about. So, Dr. Fauci, it's Saturday morning in America. People are waking up right now with real concerns about this. They want to go to malls and movies, maybe the gym as well. Should we be changing our habits? And if so, how? No, right now, at this moment, there is no need to change anything that you're doing on a day-by-day -day basis. I think the American people, I know the American people, should really take the following attitude. The risk right now in the United States is really low. 
it's an evolving problem. And it's evolving very crucially and critically in China. Right now, people who want to fly anywhere in the United States, they shouldn't worry at all. A lot of people are planning cruises over the spring break. And you recommend yeah. that anybody, even a healthy person, yeah. get on board yeah. a cruise ship? Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're a healthy young person, that there is no reason, if you want to go on a cruise ship, to go on a cruise ship. What about avoiding large crowds? Should I be cognizant of that as well? Well, yeah, you, but actually depends on what you mean. If you're talking about coronavirus, it is not circulating in this country. So there's no issue with regard to crowds. But we are still in the middle of a flu season. The flu is a real and present issue that we are going through right now. That's not today. If this cycles through, maybe even goes down a bit and comes back next year, that's when you get public health plus a vaccine. We hope this just goes away. So this bomb went off. Uh, we have looked at the damage. Um, we have uh, weathered that storm. Uh, I know people that have lost loved ones. It's it's uh, it's just a tragedy and very hard to deal with. But we're now looking forward to the potential that, hey, we could have uh, uh, another virus uh, potentially escape from a Chinese lab or some weird animal gets eaten and it gets spread. Whatever, whatever theory you buy right now, I certainly think it's more of a, a lab leak. But this is not just a historic event, just like after 9-11, just like a previous generation under Pearl Harbor. There is now going to be this singular focus concern on what do we do next time so it's not as bad as, as last time. And in the case of 9-11, we did have some terrorist incidents in the United States. They did not end up being quite as bad, but the ever-present threat was there, and we have it now. So what should be the takeaway that we as citizens of this country uh, use in when we engage with our public uh, uh, officials. Yeah, I think just use the lens of follow the money. Let's at least be transparent and be aware of the context of if we're advocating for a position, who stands to make money off of it? Right. What relationships do they have with the people that are making those decisions that might, and what other forces, whether it's critical race theory or teachers unions or anything else that are political in nature, what forces are shaping what we're told is the best policy for collective public health? Right. And I would also say there's a difference between science, which we all believe in, uh, and the healthcare bureaucrat um, who is human, uh, who's prone to mistakes. We talked in a previous podcast about how Anthony Fauci was wrong about so much uh, at the beginning of this uh, uh, crisis, continued to be wrong in the middle of it. And even at this point, I think uh, history is going to show that has made a lot of mistakes. So. The bottom line is don't let them wrap themselves in the mantle of science uh, and simply accept what they say. We need to question it. We need to challenge it. Uh, and, and we need to be citizens that not only question politicians, but question our public health authorities as well. And the best way to do that is continuing to listen to podcasts like this one that give you information you won't find anywhere else with the research by people with massive portfolios like Peter Schweitzer, <laughs> who are out there doing the drill downs and doing the deep research like we do at the Government Accountability Great, Institute. great segue. Great segue. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this has been The Drill Down. You can find out more by going to our website, thedrilldown.com, or checking us out on social Social media. One day we'll do a podcast where you have to name all the social media channels that we're on. <laughs> and I think it'll be really fun. We'll, actually, we'll play a game with like, which one's a real social media channel yeah. and which one's one we made up. It'll like, be like bingo. Yeah, like ding dong. Is that real or not? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. 